So I don't know about you, uh, but if I could go back and relive any year of my childhood without, without changing anything about it, just experiencing it again, uh, I would probably pick my fourth grade year. Uh, fourth grade, it was the year after we moved, and we you know, finally had gotten settled. I had one of the best teachers I'd ever had. Uh, he turned his whole portable into like, uh, uh, like a wildlife area. He was a hunter. Um, he even built like a little miniature log cabin that one student every uh, week go into for reading time. Um, and, and I had some friendships that had been kind of established and were growing. And all around, it was just, it was just a real really good year. Um, But the year that I definitely would not pick um, is really any year in middle school. (laughs) Um, And it probably goes without saying that middle school, like, you know, it was great, it was fine, but like maybe for probably many of you, it was some of the most awkward times of our lives. And I remember in middle school feeling so insecure. I was this pimple-faced, kid who was kind of athletic, wanted to be cool, but was like also a pretty big uh, nerd. Um, And I remember in middle school, that was the place where I learned for the first time ever that your mom sewing all of your clothes was not socially cool. Um, And just becoming extremely self-conscious and aware of how I was being perceived by other people. And I'm sure that even maybe talking about your middle school years and thinking about them is maybe like causing a little bit of like PTSD for some of you. Um, And it's just because it's, it's somewhat obvious. It is some of the most insecure years of our lives growing up for many, many reasons. And insecurities, they uh, keep us from engaging in the world with confidence, and they make our internal world feel chaotic, like like there's a storm uh, or a tornado going through them. And insecurities about who we are in Christ, they can arise from doubts about God's willingness or even ability to love and forgive us. They can cause us to despair and they can cause us to be pridefully building our own structures of accomplishment, thinking that they will secure for us God's love and forgiveness. But God desires that Christians would neither be lost to despair nor bound to a system of works that doesn't work. And in this passage, God shows how he once for all secures the benefits of Christ for those who belong to him. And my main point that I want to kind of point out in this passage and draw out is that Christ places those who are under, who are, who are his, under the reign of infinite grace to reign with him in life. That what we're going to see in this passage is that Christ takes those who are his, those who belong to him, those who are in Christ, and they are forever under the reign of infinite grace that grace controls in their lives. Why? That they would reign with Christ in life. And if we had to break this down, you know, it's kind of three sections. Um, there's three paragraphs here, and I think it actually boils down pretty well. Um, what we'll work through is how three things. One, how Christ is a new Adam. Secondly, how Christ is different from Adam. And then thirdly, how Christ is greater than Adam. 
And we need to come to this passage remembering that the book of Romans, it is all about the gospel. That if there is a thesis statement for Romans, it's verse 16 of chapter 1 where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then also to the Greek. And Paul's point in this whole letter is to expound upon the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has accomplished a victory and that this gospel, it has power. And in this passage, we're going to see the power of God and how it can change our lives. And Paul, he's already been building his case. He's been talking a lot about sin, and he's talking a lot about judgment. And in chapter 4, it was all about faith, how faith alone in Christ alone is how we are made right with God. But ultimately, our confession, if we want to put it all together, we, we believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in this passage, Paul has just been talking about faith in Christ alone, and now he's turning his attention to grace. The word grace appears in the book of Romans uh, about 29 times, sometimes grace, sometimes gift. Uh, the Greek words are charisma and charis. I'm probably mispronouncing those, um, but that's not the point. The point is that in this book, the, the word grace or gift, it appears maybe once out of every 330 words. Um, or once out of every 200 words. You know. But in this passage, it's once out of every 33 words. The proportion of words just even emphasize that, that he's talking about grace a lot. And so he wants to shift from faith in Christ alone to now expounding upon how does grace work? What is this thing called grace? And so coming to the first chunk here, we see that Christ, he is a new Adam. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. And here Paul explicitly says that Christ, Christ is the, the fulfillment of what Adam points to, that Adam, he is this the word, it's called a type. And type, it can mean pattern. Um, and we have to ask the question then, well, okay, well, who is Adam. If, if Adam sets up a pattern which Christ kind of matches with and, and fulfills, who is this Adam? And there's a few things that we could you know, point out about Adam. Uh, one is that he's a real person. Uh, every single biblical writer and Jesus himself talks about Adam as though he's a, he's a real person. But he's also the first person. Uh, Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. That he is the first person, the first image of God. 
He's also the first songwriter. You know, as God makes Eve and Adam sees Eve, he says, this one at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. You know, so he, he expounds on a song. He's the first human to write a song, a very romantic love poem to Eve. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Of my flesh. Um, but he's also God's first son. He's God's first son. Without human uh, biological parents, he is in some ways God's son. Uh, the writer, so Luke, he's uh, talking about the genealogy of Jesus, the very human genealogy of Jesus, and he traces Jesus all the way back to Adam. And in Luke 3:38 says, "Son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God." That Adam, he is the first son of God. Also, he is the source of every nation. Adam is the source of every single human being. In Acts 17:26, Paul says this, "From one man he made every nation to live under the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries where they live. From one man he has made every nation." that every one of us, we could trace our lineage back to Adam if we had the ability to do so. Not only all this, but he is the first violator of a covenant, the first trespasser of a covenant with God. In Hosea 6-7, Hosea is rebuking the nation of Israel, and he says, but they, like Adam, have violated the covenant. There they have betrayed me, and so uh, what's happening is Hosea is taking Israel and says, you, Israel, are violating the covenant like Adam violated a covenant in the garden. And as we come to this passage, what we see is that Adam is the source of sin and death for all of humanity. The verse 12 says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin in this way, Death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. But nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. And if there's any fact about humanity that can be asserted by uh, Christian or non-Christian is that sin is universal that everyone sins. And the two things are most sure in life are death and taxes. Paul's talking about death here, though, okay? Um, Not taxes. But sin, what Paul's saying is that sin, it was in the world even before God gave the law to Moses. And he's pointing this out because he's also writing to a Jewish audience. And the Jews, you know, they had this, this view of the law that righteousness came through the law. And so they're kind of, kind of trying to, you know, make sure, Paul's wanting to make sure, explain, like, okay, even before the law was explicitly stated in letters by God's finger, well, there was still sin in the world. And previous to this, you know, he's talked about how sin, you know, everyone has a law in their own conscience that God has put there that they violate, even if they don't have this written law of God. And so when he says sin was in the world before the law, he's just making sure to be like, there's still a sin. And all that sin is traced back to Adam, that he is the source of it. And the law, it functioned to help explicitly list the violations 
of the law. It makes sin more serious when you not only break the law, but you break the law after you've been told what the law is in explicit terms. You know, if, if uh, you know, your, your child were to um, steal the toy of your other child, that would be wrong. And, but if you told them, like, hey, don't go steal that kid's toy, and they actually go steal it, like, they've, they've broken the law, and then they've really broken the law. That sin could be explicitly charged as a violation of a command. But sin existed in the world from, and it reigned from Adam to Moses, even before the law came into existence. And therefore, death ruled. Death reigned over all humanity. And the question that we come to, that, that we kind of start asking ourselves, like, how did that actually happen? Like, how is one person's sin resulting in death and condemnation for all humanity? Um, th- that, seems, that seems unfair, you know? It seems, seems just even, like, kind of weird. And there's two kind of explanations that, that help to maybe, uh, for some people to understand how does this happen. Uh, one is that in Adam, we all get a sinful nature. That by, you know, Adam sinned, he fell, and we have inherited a sinful nature from him. Every single one of us could, could if we think about Adam, he could actually be probably one of our best representatives. You know, if we were in his situation, we probably would have done worse than just eat an apple in violation of this command. But the second way to think about it, and I think that what Paul is drawing out in this passage is that not only do we inherit a sinful nature, but Adam's sin is imputed to us. That in some ways, he is like a representative before God for all humanity. And that, in our American individualism, it doesn't, it doesn't jive well sometimes with how we think. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe kind of illustrate how this you know, works. You know, we, we see this even in our own culture. We see this so many different ways. Um, how one person uh, and what they do, the effects of that are felt by the whole body of people. Uh, one way is in sports. You know, I play hockey. Um, and if our goalie, uh, like he did maybe a, a couple weeks ago, uh, lets in a goal in the last three seconds of the game and we lose, we all lose the game. One person's misstep has resulted in an outcome for the entire body of people. And it's not like I'm going to go up to the ref after the game and be like, ref, that was so unfair. It was one person's responsibility to, to, to do this thing, to stop the puck, and he just like totally biffed it. Um, we would never say that, you know. Uh, that would not be a case that we can make to the referee. And, and if tonight uh, in the Super Bowl a similar thing happens and a kicker misses a field goal or the quarterback uh, throws a pick on the one-yard line um, to alter the outcome of the game, uh, the person playing second-string quarterback or the person who, the 52nd man on the roster who had n- you know, no say in the game probably whatsoever, no time in the game, he can't go up to the ref and be like, ref, that was all that person's fault. Like, come on, like, I, can I be part of the winning team as well? Like, no, no, he's going to say, like, no, that's not the way it works. And it works this way in nations, especially, um, where there's a person who represents a group of people, and that person's actions and their consequences are felt by the entire body of people 
that they govern. Any world leader who makes a decision, their decision affects everyone under them. And in some ways, they will experience the consequences for good or for bad of that person's decision. Thankfully, we live in a nation where we can elect those people, but that's not the case in every nation. But in every nation, there is a person and their decisions will affect everyone. This is called the, how Adam is a federal head in some ways. That When he voted for us, when he voted in the garden, he was our representative. And his vote is applied to us as well. And if we were in his situation, we would have, we would have done worse. We would have done the, either, the same thing, if not, if not worse, than Adam. We have no reason to come to God and say that is unfair. But Adam here, he is a type of Christ. And that is what Paul is drawing out here, that Adam is a type of Christ. And a type is a person, event, or institution. You know, think of, you know, Adam is a person. He points to Christ. Uh, an event like, like the Exodus, you know, that that's, can point to Christ and how he delivers. Or an institution. The whole temple points to Christ. So a type is a person, event, or institution designed to point ahead to the person and work of Christ. And Paul says explicitly, Adam is a type of Christ. And what we, you know, if you, this, you know, you never interacted with what a type is. A uh, type has a few features. One, a type, there's a repetition that goes on throughout scriptures. It's repeated a few times. Uh, it goes from a, an area of like lesser uh, to greater revelation. Um, you know, we see a form in maybe the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, we see how Christ kind of fulfills what is happening there. And it progresses even through the covenants. And I think what Paul has in mind here is that he has in mind this whole big picture of how Christ is a type, or how Adam is a type of Christ. And this, this can only make sense if scriptures have one author. That we know that the Bible is written by many people over the course of thousands of years, but what's happening in the scriptures is that it is literally God's breath. That God himself is also the author of the scriptures. And that in the scriptures, he is telling a story throughout human history to help magnify who Christ is. There's this guy, his name is Ben Zander. Um, he teaches classical music. He did a TED Talk on the power of classical music back in like 2008. And I remember when he talked about the power of classical music, what he did was that he played this, this song uh, by Frederick Chopin called Prelude in E Minor. That's the name of, of the, the two-minute piano piece that he played. It's a, they may, might have had a different title at some point. I don't know. But what happens in this two-minute song is that it goes through a progression of four different chords, uh, from B to A to G to F, and then back down, and then he hits the E chord. But he doesn't hit the E chord that you hope he hits, he hits a different E chord, and then he bounces it out to a lower E chord, and then finally at the end of this two minutes tension-building song, he hits the E chord that satisfies the end of the song. 
And what, we, what, I, what I'm sharing this with you, Lord, is that we understand buildup and tension and, and how things point ahead to a resolution. And in the scriptures, God is telling a story. He's composing a masterpiece. And Christ comes and he resolves the tension that we feel in the scriptures of, of what things are pointing to. And we see the big picture. And so with Adam, what happens with Adam? Adam, he's in the garden. You know, he, a life-giving paradise. He's given a test, but he eats of the fruit of the tree. He fails the test, and he's cast into the wilderness. Then comes along Noah. And Noah, through Noah, God recreates the entire world. It's almost like a new garden gets established. And we're left wondering, like, okay, is this going to happen this time? Or are we going to have a guy who actually passes the test, and Noah does not pass the test. It's shortly even after coming out that he gets drunk on the fruit of another tree, of a vine. And we see that, no, no, Noah, he's not the guy that, that we're looking for. Um, and then Abraham comes along. And Abraham, he's journeying, he's journeying in the wilderness of the Negev. And we wonder, is this going to be the guy, you know? God's meeting with him in the wilderness several times at trees, but, Adam, uh, but Abraham is not the guy. Like, he gets God's promise, and instead of trusting God's promise, uh, he decides to have a child through the son, of, uh, through Hagar, through not his wife. And so he fails the test. Israel, Israel as well. Israel's traveling through wilderness, and God promises them a land of milk and honey. Uh, but do they enter the land initially? No. They're scared, they're cowardly, and they end up wandering for another number of years. David and Solomon, David to whom God made a covenant, like, you know what, you're going to have someone always on the throne in your lineage. And then comes along Solomon, and we wonder, okay, is this going to be the guy? And Solomon, he's a guy who, from the nation of Israel, he's building gardens, and we wonder, okay, well, okay, is this going to be the guy now? And Solomon, no way, Jose. He, like, he has more wives than anyone else ever probably in the entire world. And then comes along Jesus. And in, in the story of the Gospels, you know, this type of Christ is magnified. Jesus is the one who goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, and he passes the test. Adam was in paradise, and he failed the test. Christ went into the wilderness, and he passes the test. Before his death, he's in the garden, in agony, and he passes the test as well. And ultimately, Jesus passes the test as he's hung on a tree. The writer of Acts several times refers to the cross as though it were a tree. And so Paul, you know, likely these gospel stories, people understand Jesus is a type of Christ, and he wants to recall to mind that what Jesus is, he is the new Adam. But then he goes on to point out, you know, just like patterns, you know, there are similarities and differences, he wants to make sure that the two, we know the two things are not equal. Jesus and Adam are not equal to one another, that Christ is different from Adam. And in a few ways, he says in verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. And the emphasis here is on the work. Adam's work was trespass, explicit crossing of the line. And Christ's work was a gift. 
So he's comparing the two. He's comparing gift and trespass. And the work of Adam and Christ differ in one way, and that is the consequence. That Adam's one work, trespass, it results in judgment, condemnation, and death. It says, for if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which, which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And so Christ's one work, gift, results in grace and justification. But not only that, but the work of Adam and the work of Christ, not only they differ in their consequences, they differ in their degrees, in their order of magnitude. Christ's, or Adam's one work, singular work, his singular trespass, it results in death for all. Verse 16 says, And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came judgment, resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. And so Christ's one work after many transgressions, it overflows to those who belong to him. That this gift, it overflows to them. And the work of Adam and the work of Christ, they differ in these ways, but they also differ in how they position those who are under them. They differ in how they position those who are under them. In verse 17, it says, If by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Adam's trespass, death, comes into the world. It reigns through that one man so that we would know that we are, we are under sin. And Adam's trespass, it leaves man fatally in death's domain. We are ultimately victims under death. The death is not a, a master that we would want. It's not a ruler that we would want. But we become victims of death. But Christ's overflowing grace, his gift of righteousness, if received, brings man to reign in life through Christ. And for those who are under Christ, they, be, they turn from becoming victims of death to what I would call vice regents of Christ. What does it say? It says that, that they would reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And this is a glorious, amazing, mind-blowing truth that under the reign of grace, we are not just victims and subjects, but, but we are placed alongside to rule with Christ. And I do not understand to some degree what that all will entail, but it is an amazing, glorious truth. And here we have to understand that, that what Paul is not doing in this passage he is not expounding upon universalism in any degree of the imagination. In fact, Paul has already affirmed that there are two eternal destinies. In chapter 2, he says, Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will repay each one according to his works, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. But wrath, anger, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth 
while obeying unrighteousness. And even in this passage, Paul qualifies those who belong to Christ as those who receive the overflow of grace. And so we should not understand this to be talking about, you know, universal salvation. No, what, what is coming into focus is what the work of Adam and what the work of Christ secures for those who are under them. Which brings us to the third point that Christ, he is the greater Adam. He is greater than Adam. And Adam and Christ, they both secure a judgment. Verse 18 says, So then as through one trespass, there's condemnation for everyone. So also through one act, the righteous act, there's justification leading to life for everyone. Adam secured condemnation for all those who belong to him, and Christ secures justification. Right standing before God for all those who belong to him. And, you know, this is, you know, if, if you're reading this, there, there might be some, some things you, your brain could be getting tripped up. He says, he says, everyone. How are we to understand that? Everyone. It's, it's literally all peoples. All people. And I think what we should do is we should just look at the whole way Paul uses that word, everyone, and just consider what that should mean here. He moves into uh, you know, Romans 12, 17. He says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. And so here, it's like Paul uses the word everyone in a way where it's like, well, okay, but, but literally you're not going to do what's honorable in every single person's eyes because some people, they see dishonorable things as honorable. You know, he doesn't literally mean every single person. In chapter 14, he says, one person believes he may, may eat anything. The word all is in there. While one who is weak eats only vegetables. And he doesn't literally mean that there's a person out there who thinks they can eat literally anything, like the chair or, you know. He's talking about eating uh, meat, you know. But so he, again, he's using the word in a way that doesn't imply literally every individual thing. And in 16, Romans 16, 19, he said, the report of your obedience has reached everyone. And then once again, literally, I'm sure, the report of the obedience of the Romans has probably not been heard by every single literal individual on the face of the planet. So when we come to this verse, it's, it's pretty clear. Like, okay, we should take the whole use of this word, how Paul uses it in every single context, and just give him a little bit of leeway here that what is actually primarily in focus is what Adam and Christ secure for those who are under them. And so Adam and Christ, they both secure an identity for those who are under them. Verse 19 says, For justice through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That in Adam, Adam secures the title sinner for us. We are sinners. And in Christ, Christ secures the title righteous for those who belong to him. And the growing effects of Adam are superseded by the overflowing effect of Christ. It says in verse 20, the law came along to multiply the trespass. The trespass, what, the trespass, Adam's trespass. And what the law comes and does is that it turns 
Adam's sin, it turns each of us into literally thousands and thousands and millions of Adams who explicitly violate the command of God. And in our minds, what we should think is like, well, what was the consequence for one person violating the command of God? Condemnation for all humanity, being cast out of the garden, separation from God for eternity. Oh, what if there's millions of Adams? What happens? So, so Adam, his, the effects of Adam, they, they are growing effects. But what we see then is that Christ's grace supersedes all of that. It says, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. The law intensified the seriousness of, the seriousness of sin, but Christ intensifies infinitely his grace over those people. And Adam and Christ both create rulers. In verse 21, it says, so then just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That in Adam, sin reigns. Those who are in Adam, sin reigns over them. And those who are in Christ, grace reigns over them. And in closing, you know, as we think about how, does this, how do we take this and how do we live in light of this, I just want to encourage you in two things. One, consider what reigns over you. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? And if you are in Adam, realize that your sin deserves condemnation, that you are worthy of it, that your sin, if you were in his position, you would have done no better. And Christ is the one who offers himself in an act of costly grace to you and his gift, it makes all who receive him righteous inheritors of eternal life. And Paul is clear that the magnitude of grace is infinitely greater than the magnitude of sin. And this is why we can have confidence that all who receive Christ will make it to the end. Paul says to Timothy, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And so the second thing I encourage you to do is, is to reign in life with Christ. Reign in life with Christ. What does that mean? What am, I, what am I talking here? Well, you know, the gospel of Mark, you know, as Mark is telling the story of Jesus, he builds up eight whole chapters of Jesus being this powerful Messiah, healing people, working wonders, exercising demons, this man of power. And then we have a surprise. You know, people think he's going to be this powerful king. He's going to come. He's going to be, be the Messiah. And Jesus teaches his disciples the true meaning of what it means to have power and exercise that power and reign. First, take up your cross with his disciples. He says, calling to the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me because of me and the gospel will save it. That to reign with Christ in life, it means denying yourself and taking up the cross. Taking up your cross is what it says. We could talk forever about what that means. But the second thing he says to his disciples in Mark 8 is about servants, being a servant of all. His disciples are bickering about who's the greatest among them. And he says, sitting down with them, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and a servant of all. The terrain in life with Christ is not about domineering. It is about getting low and serving 
all. He expounds upon this later in another teaching about being a slave of all. And he gives them this instruction. He tells them about his own reign in Mark 10, 45. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus suffered and died to produce life in those who belonged to him. And we should likewise serve, suffer, and dare I say, die, that others might have life in Christ as well. The ultimate aim of our suffering and the ultimate passion of ours should not be about uh, those who care, we care about, that they would have a better government, a better community, a better family, career, or retirement, or whatever. But the ultimate aim of our suffering and our greatest passion should be ultimately that they would come to be saved by receiving God's overflowing grace to reign in life with Christ as well. And salvation it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And those who belong to Christ are placed under this reign of infinite grace that they would reign in life with Christ. And this is the positive vision for the Christian life that we should embrace in how we live and how we think about our walk with Christ. And without this security, our souls they'll fall into despair or they'll fall into self-reliance and we will reign in cowardice and we will reign in pomp. But under the reign of grace, we are free to reign in life courageously, graciously, and sacrificially with Christ who is our great servant king. That's why I just really encourage you to think about is how to do that in your life. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much that you sent Christ for us, God. God, that Christ imputes to us a righteousness that we do not deserve, and he takes our sin upon himself. What a glorious thing. And that we are not just left into a neutral position, but that we receive overflowing grace, a magnitude which is far greater than what our sin had done to us, God. And what a glorious thing that everything that we have in Christ is so much greater, so much infinitely greater than everything that we had in Adam. And I pray that you'd help us to to understand what that means, Lord, that we would reign with you in life. In your name we pray, amen.